0: Uh, Sing those words, and we sing them with great joy, knowing that we have an eternity with him to look forward to. God, thank you for your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. I think it's one of the best places to be in all of life, to be the best friend of a guy about to go on his first date. Brandon knows. Uh, It's the best. I I highly recommend that you try it sometime if you haven't, uh, because you get to experience all of the fun with none of the worry. I'm serious. You you get to experience all the thrill, all of the excitement with none of the nerves. It's the best. I was once the best friend of a guy who was about to go on his first date. Uh, Surprisingly, I still am. Uh, and the night before that first date was the best for me, because he was nervous. And when I say nervous, I mean I mean nervous. I don't think nervous is really a, a strong enough word. There was real, legitimate kind of visceral fear in this man's heart. Uh, you guys got to give the give the give the dude some mercy here. Okay, he was he was scared. And so I knew that he wasn't going to be sleeping that night. He knew he wasn't going to be sleeping that night. So we decided to link up. Uh, we decided to hang out that night and just talk it out. We decided we were going to talk out how this first date was going to, do, going to go. And uh, as, a, as a loving best friend, I, I thought of the, the, the kindest thing that I could do for him. And that was to go on a mock date with my bro. I'm dead serious. I thought it was, I thought it was genius, and it was uh, the next 30 minutes were, were some of my favorite 30 minutes ever, um, probably some of the least helpful 30 minutes for him ever, um, and I'll spare you most of the details because uh, I wouldn't want to expose that side of me, um, but in my best girl in a ver- on a first date impression, I just started peppering him with questions, trying to get to know him, right? I was saying things like, you know, what what was your childhood like? You know, what, what are you passionate about? What, what do you want to do? As a career, how much do you bench? You know, the, the, the normal stuff. <coughs> They're not together anymore, but it wasn't my fault, I promise. As ridiculous as that was, those, those 30 minutes with, with this guy, uh, they did have a purpose. Uh, th- there was a theme and a goal to this mock date, and it was to help him make a good first impression. Uh, I was trying to help my best friend be ready to make his first impression on this girl in the one to two hours that they had. He wanted this girl to to get to know the basics of of who he was. Uh, He wanted her to be able to understand how she should think about him, because that's just what you do in a first impression. You you give someone the basics, uh, the fundamentals of who you are and how you want them to understand you. Well, in our passage today, we get to watch a first impression play out. Now, we get to witness God make his first impression on a man named Moses. And as he does, God reveals sort of the fundamental nature of who he is. Now, that's what our text is about tonight. Exodus chapter 3 and into chapter 4 is a text that answers the question, who is god moses as many of you know uh, will go on to be one of the great legends of the whole bible Uh, it's it's not an understatement to say that he's one of the greatest men of the bible Uh, we have our first five books of the bible because of him jesus himself quotes moses many many times it's not an understatement to say that he is one of the greatest men in all the bible but He is still just a man. And as a man, Moses shares something in common with you and with me. In fact, Moses shares something in common with every human being who has ever lived and will ever live. Because before he became one of the greatest men of God, well, he met God. You will meet God either in your life now or when you die, you too will have a first impression at some point of the God of the universe. If he hasn't already, God will one day make a first impression on you. And that moment is going to change your eternity. How you respond to God's revelation to you will change your eternity. And if you have met God and you're here today, Uh, maybe you're a Christian, I I don't want you to think that this text isn't for you. Uh, Don't assume that the God that you met however long ago doesn't still have something to teach you about himself. He does. And so I I encourage you tonight, if you do know God, to freshly take in who he is. Freshly take in the nature of your God. And I, I, I really hope that tonight is a night where you will be freshly encouraged to worship him. And if you're not a Christian, uh, maybe you're just visiting or, or maybe at some point you've just thought, well, you know, Christianity isn't for me, I just want to say that that I think this is the perfect night for you uh, because you're going you're gonna to get to witness and watch someone else meet God for the first time. Uh, you have the chance to, to sort of be on the fly, a fly on the wall and watch God introduce himself to someone. And and he reveals himself to a normal, ordinary man. Uh, Just a normal, ordinary shepherd on the side of a mountain. Uh, Tonight is also a a pretty ordinary night. It's a Friday night. It's special because we got ice cream, so that's awesome. But it's a normal Friday night. And yet, at the same time, the God of the universe is revealing himself to you in Exodus 3. So whether you've been a Christian for 10 years, or or you just started to think about it 10 seconds ago, uh, this is a text for you. God wants to to change you and to change your life by showing you who he is through a burning bush. So if if you would turn to Exodus 3 with me. Uh, Exodus 3 is an amazing book. It uh, contains the greatest story of salvation, second only to Jesus Christ. Uh, God leads Israel, his people, out of Egyptian slavery. Uh, He parts an ocean to do it, and he does it all while using Moses as his representative. Moses' first impression at this burning bush is what prepares him for that watershed moment in Israel's history. Very simply, tonight, we're going to meet God with Moses. And we're going to learn three fundamental aspects of God's nature We're going to answer the question, who is God? It's my prayer that the answer to that question would shape your relationship with him, even tonight. Exodus 3, uh, we're going to start in verses 1 through 6. First thing we're going to see is that God is dangerous. God is dangerous. Uh, We've got a lot of work to do today. We're going to go from the beginning of chapter 3 all the way to verse 17 of chapter 4. Uh, Just stay with me. We're not going to hit every single detail, Um, but for these first six verses, let's read it together. Exodus 3, 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. We're jumping into the middle of a story here, so let me set some context for you. Uh, Israel is in a real, real bad situation with Egypt. Uh, Egypt is the greatest world power at the time, and Pharaoh, Egypt's king, is feeling threatened by Israel's growing population. Israel's getting really, really big, and Pharaoh doesn't like that, so he subjects them to slavery and infanticide. Uh, He gives an order across the land that if any Israelite woman gives birth to a son— that son is to be executed. It's a real bleak picture. Israel is being subjected to, to slavery and infanticide, and it's during this time that Moses is born to an Israelite woman. Moses is born, he, he miraculously survives and gets taken into Pharaoh's household of all places, and that is a story for a different time and a different sermon, and it's really cool, you should read it. But, Pharaoh, uh, but Moses survives. Uh, He survives in in Pharaoh's household. Long story short, he lives a pretty good life until one day he sees an Egyptian abusing an Israelite. Now Moses sees this Egyptian uh, striking the Hebrew, and so he takes matters into his own hands. He goes over, and he ends up murdering this Egyptian. As you can imagine, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, didn't like that. So Pharaoh tries to kill Moses, Moses flees, and according to chapter 3, verse 1, he finds himself on the side of a mountain in the wilderness. On the side of this mountain, Moses is just walking around doing shepherd things, just hanging out with sheep, and as he is, he sees a bush that's on fire. And like any normal human being would do, he decides to go over and look at this bush on fire. In California, we know about fires. We've been on fire for like a week now. It's been miserable. Uh, But one thing that we know about fires being in California is that it burns stuff, and it keeps burning stuff. And and when it burns stuff, it spreads and it starts burning other stuff. And so Moses here is, is understandably intrigued because when he sees this fire, it's doing the one thing, it's not doing the one thing that we all know that fire does. It's not burning this bush. And so, so Moses goes to investigate. He's, he's asking, you know, what's going on? Why is this bush on fire? Are my, are, my, are my sheep safe? And then all of a sudden he hears a voice, verse 4. Moses, Moses. Moses responds, here I am, because what else do you do in that situation? And then the first thing that Moses hears after his own name from this bush is a sharp command, verse 5. Do not come near. A stay away, Moses. And not a single step closer. And at this point, you can probably imagine Moses is frozen. He's trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Why is this bush talking to me? And, and then this fiery bush, you know, it still hasn't identified himself, and immediately another command comes. Look at verse 5. Take your sandals off your feet. Removing your sandals was, a, it was an ancient Near Eastern sign of respect. When you entered someone else's domain or authority or, or property, uh, it signaled that you were submitting to their rule. You were entering a place where, where they got to make the rules. And honestly, I, I don't think I have to explain that one very much to this crowd because I've seen the signs in 424 before in AFF. They're nicely lettered. They look really pretty. They say, please remove your shoes before entering. And it looks really great. But what you're really doing is exercising your authority in your domain, saying, don't get your nasty shoes on my clean floor. Right? That's basically what you're saying. And that's what's happening here in verse 5. God says, take your sandals off. And then he says, For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, if you're Moses, uh, what are you thinking? For One, you're probably a little bit scared. There's a bush on fire talking to you, giving you commands, giving you warnings. Uh, But at the same time, you're probably a little bit confused, right? Uh, What do you mean holy ground? I've been walking around on this mountain already doing my shepherding things, I was walking around with my sheep. I've had my sandals on this whole time. There, there hasn't been any problem. I'm in the wilderness. This ground is really nothing special, right? And then it's as if God answers all those questions in one sentence. Look at verse 6. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And here, it's at this point that our text tells us that that Moses starts to get it. Moses starts to understand what's happening. At at these words of identification, Moses immediately hides his face, and and our text tells us it's because he was afraid to look at God. What was it about these words in particular that, that struck fear in the heart of Moses? It wasn't the fiery bush, it wasn't the commands or the warnings, it wasn't the holy ground that that caused Moses' fear. It was these words of of God's identification. Moses was afraid at these words because it sunk in that he was in the presence of an eternal God. You see, Moses would have remembered those names, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. It would have reminded him of all those stories in Genesis, when those three men lived. He would have remembered that the God of Abraham is the God who spoke the universe into existence, right? He would have remembered that the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob was the God who flooded the earth and, and obliterated mankind for their sin. But Moses would have realized that he was in the presence of a God who is holy. That means that God would not tolerate anything that's unholy, or unrighteous, or impure. And so for for God to be here, he had to make the the very ground that he was standing on holy. Uh, Moses would have understood that, you know what, you're right, I, I should take my sandals off because I'm walking on ground that you own, God. He would have also understood that The command to to not come near, to stay away, was really an act of mercy. Because God's holiness is dangerous for sinners. God's holiness is dangerous for sinners. Now, I wonder how many of us in this room had a first encounter with God where we were told not to come near. Remember the first time you heard about God? Uh, Maybe you heard that God loves you. Maybe you heard uh, God has a plan for your life. God wants you to go to church. God, God doesn't want you to disobey your parents. I'm not necessarily opposed to any of those things at all. But I do think that it would be helpful if we knew that we would be in great danger in the presence of God. If you think that you know God, but you don't recognize that you are in danger in the presence of his holiness, then you've got the wrong God. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, now the God of Moses, is a holy God, and that means sinners are in danger in his holy presence. And you and I are sinners. We're we're messed up, we're not perfect Uh, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the the penalty, the the wages for that sin is death. You see, God is is dangerous because God is holy and we are not. And if we're not made holy, well, then our souls are in danger in his presence. Only a holy God is. Can cleanse an unholy sinner. And praise God that that's exactly what Jesus offers at the cross, is it not? Jesus died that very death, the death for sin, even though he had none. So that if we place our faith in him, we can freely and joyfully enter into the presence of God, even the holy presence of God. And if not, you are in eternal danger. This is the first impression that we we have to have of God if we're going to look to Jesus for salvation. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a famous story called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You've probably heard of it. Uh, There's a scene in it when a little girl named Susan learns about the great King Aslan. Uh, Mr. Beaver, another character who is aptly named because he is a beaver, Uh, informs Susan that Aslan is actually a lion. And their conversation goes like this. Oh, said Susan, "I I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. If you're a sinner here tonight who does not know God, you need to know that God is not only dangerous, but that he's also good. I'll get more into this later, but I I just can't resist right now. God wants you to come into his presence. God wants to enable you to enter into the joy of being with him. But the only way that you can do that is through Jesus Christ. No one goes to the Father except through Him. And if you haven't placed your faith in that Christ who, who brings you to God, I, I urge you to, to not spend another moment without considering it. Uh, do not reject this, this dangerous and this holy but this good God. And If you do know God, how does His holiness affect you now? How does it change the way that you deal with sin? How, how does it change the way that you pray? How does it change the way that you worship, even sing? A few weeks ago, we, we welcomed a ton of visitors to, to GCC. Uh, a bunch of students came to visit, and we had our pastor, Austin Duncan, write kind of a welcome letter to them to introduce our church to them. I just want to read a, a brief excerpt from that. This is Austin. says, it's pretty formal around here, isn't it? There are more neckties per capita at GCC than any other place in California. It's Probably true. Not everybody has a suit on, but there is something strategically formal about our church. We take church seriously. When we gather each Sunday, we enter God's presence together. We don't simply attend. We come to adore the worthiness of God. We worship a big God. So if things seem formal and sober, it's because they are. Worship should be joyful and serious. I hope your familiarity with God as a Christian doesn't cause you to just enter his presence casually. The holiness of God should always be a sobering and a humbling reality. From here, we'll we'll move to our next section, and it's the rest of chapter 3. So that God is dangerous in verses 1 through 6, and that's what what makes what we learn in verse 7 through 22 really, really shocking. In these verses, we get to learn that God is relational. God is relational. Let's start just by reading verses 7 and the beginning of 8. And as we do, keep in mind what God has already said to Moses. Exodus 3, 7 and, and the beginning of 8 says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land. We'll stop there. Uh, this verse is, is giving us a picture of a God who has a deep and personal and intimate concern for his people. I mean, do you see how involved God is in these verses? In just this this verse and a half, we see four of these action verbs of God being personally involved with his people. Look at, look, at it, look at it again, verse 7. I have seen their afflictions. I have heard. I know their sufferings. I have come down. And then in verse 9, you, you get more repetition. I have seen their oppression. E- even in verse 10, when, when Moses learns that he's going to be the one to, to go to Pharaoh, God says, I am the one sending you. You're going, but it's it's me who is doing the sending? It's because God is the one who personally cares about these people. God is the one sending because God is the one saving them. When Moses hears that he's going to be the one to stand before Pharaoh, he responds to God in verse 11. He says, who am I that I should go? Who am I? You see how Moses missed the point here? Remember, this passage, really this whole book, is answering that question, who is God? God has spent this whole section displaying who he is. He's shown that he is a God who is holy and dangerous, that he's a God who cares and loves his people. And then Moses asks, who is? Am I? Well, God gives us one more action verb in verse 12 in response. And this verse is really the culmination of this whole section. God responds and says, but I will be with you. I love how how God answers Moses' question here. God doesn't rebuke him. Uh, The text doesn't say that God's angry with him. Uh, God simply just reorients Moses back to himself. Uh, God simply recalibrates Moses' compass to point back to God. Uh, One commentator puts it this way, Moses feels that his eye is inadequate for the task. God responds by saying that it is his eye that is to be reckoned with. It's as if God is saying, Moses, I know. I know that this task is way, way too big for you. (laughs) Of course it is. But it's not too big for me. I I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, and I am your God too. I will be with you. Uh, Can you imagine how, how sweet those words would have sounded to Moses? Do you remember the first command that he, he was already given? Do not come near to me. This ground is holy. You're in the presence of a, of a dangerous God. Do not come near. But now, verse 12, I will be with you. Out of all these verbs of, of God's personal involvement with his people, this is the one that the text really focuses in on. And if you're familiar with this passage, you might have just raised an eyebrow because down in verse 14, you see one of the most famous phrases in the entire Bible, I am who I am. Uh, Songs and sermons and books have been written just about this one phrase, and if you thought that was the main phrase of this text, well, you'd actually kind of be right. Uh, Let me explain. I'm going to start talking about some some grammar here stay with me uh, it's gonna be worth it trust me if you're not convinced just remember Moses was hearing this from a talking fiery bush so try to put yourself in his shoes and and, and I think you'll, you'll start to, to to get what he was feeling I need to understand this. Moses actually didn't have shoes at this point so put yourself in his perspective uh, okay here we go uh, in Hebrew the original uh, language that this text was written in, the verb to be looks exactly the same in the present tense as it does in the future tense. Okay, so in English we'll say I am for the present tense and I will be for the future tense. I am hungry, I will be hungry in 10 minutes. But in Hebrew, I am and I will be look exactly the same. They look and sound exactly the same. It's only the context of the passage that tells you which one is which. Okay, so I am and I will be look the same. One last thing, the name Yahweh is actually a Hebrew word that rearranges this verb to be. It's just a a different form of to be. So in summary, I will be, I am, and Yahweh are all kind of one word in Hebrew. Okay, now look back at verse six with me. God says, I am the God of your father. Jump down to verse 11. Moses asks, who am I? God responds with, doesn't matter. I will be with you. Okay, then in verse 13, Moses asks, okay, well, who are you? What's your name? And God responds with, I already told you. I am who I am. I will be with you. One more, look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. When you see LORD in all caps, it's the, it's the name Yahweh. Say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh has sent me to you. And so this text is God in, in every way, shape, and form Repeating this verb to be over and over and over again as an identification of who he is. God is trying to emphasize that he, the the eternal God of the universe, is equal to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Don't get me wrong, we have a ton to learn from that phrase, I am who I am. His his self-existence or his aseity. His immutability, his eternality. there's a, a hundred words that we could talk about that are really long and hard to pronounce. But why does this verse want us to teach, want to teach us that about God? Because there's not only a, a theological reality being conveyed here, but a relational one. The real thrust of these verses is to tell you that the great I am, the transcendent God of the universe is personally devoted to his people. That that the personal God equals Yahweh, and Yahweh equals the great I Am, the one who has existed from all eternity. This incomprehensible, unfathomable God is intimately, affectionately, relationally concerned about his people. The God who is is the God who is with us. Look, the the Bible is not about us. But the Bible does care about us. You understand that, right? You are not the main character of the Bible, neither is Moses. Exodus 3 is not about you, but it displays a God who cares about you. God is is certainly dangerous, but he is also relational. And and those two things are not at odds with each other. God's dangerousness does not preclude a relationship with him. It it just means that you have to come to him on his terms. Praise God that his terms are for you to come to the cross of Jesus Christ empty-handed. To just trust that the blood of Christ is enough to cleanse you. Uh, We just sang it, didn't we? Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. It's it's no accident that one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel, God with us. That's what this passage is about. It's about a God who is, and about a God who is with his people. The section ends with, God's spelling out exactly how he's going to keep this promise to Moses in Israel. Uh, the next uh, few verses until chapter 4 are just proof after proof of God being with his people and acting on their behalf to deliver them from Egypt. Uh, God tells Moses that Pharaoh's not going to listen to you at first, and that's going to be a big mistake because I'm going to do some crazy stuff in Egypt. Uh, you have no idea what, what's coming. Just trust me. I, I will be with you. And just like that, chapter 3, verse 22 says, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. God is relational. God cares about his people. And that's what takes us to chapter 4. This next section in chapter 4 is going to go all the way to verse 17. And here we're going to see our third answer to that question, who is God? We've seen in chapter 3 that he's dangerous and relational, and now in chapter 4, verses 1 through 17, we see that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Uh, As I was was studying for this, I I stumbled across a a few sermons uh, that people have preached on this very text. Uh, Here are some of their sermon titles. Use what God gave you. Overcome your greatest fears. This one's my favorite. I am means you can. It's not good at all. As you can see, this section is a very frequently misunderstood portion of Scripture, and that really is a real shame, because it is a very significant moment in the bigger picture of Scripture. If you do read this section in a vacuum, all you get is is how God uh, helps a man overcome his weaknesses and his inadequacies, it's how God enables a man to fulfill his calling. But if you read this section in context, you again get to see God on display. And the picture of this God that you get is one of absolute sovereignty. There's a lot of great details that we can look at in this text. Um, but let me just summarize kind of what's going on here. In chapter four, verse one through 17. Uh, Moses has three more objections to God. There were already two in chapter 3. God God calls Moses. Moses responds with, who am I that I should go? God says, doesn't matter. Uh, Moses then objects. He says, well, well, who are you? God says, I am who I am. And now in chapter 4, we get three more of those kinds of questions slash objections. You'll see them in verses 1-10. And 13, and, and let me summarize those for you. In verse 1, Moses objects and he says, God, no one is going to believe me. I'm going to look ridiculous. Uh, you want me, uh, a fugitive from Egypt, uh, a, a nobody Israelite, a shepherd in the wilderness, to go to the nation of Israel and say, your God appeared to me and talked to me in a bush on fire. I'm going to look ridiculous, God. This is why you and I, you know, like, take pictures and videos of cool stuff that happens. Because then when we tell our friends, they're like, where's the pictures? picture didn't happen kind of thing. And then you're like, okay, well, I guess it didn't happen. That's Moses' first concern. They're not going to believe me. Moses' second concern in verse 10, he says, Lord, I am not eloquent. I'm not eloquent. Literally, he says, I am heavy of tongue. Moses says he's not good at articulating himself. He's not good at at public speaking, which he sees as a really big problem because that's like one of two things that God is telling him to do. And then the third objection in verse 13, Moses just gives up. Verse 13, Moses just says, please just send someone else. Anybody but me, God. I've got no more excuses. I'm just scared. I'm not your guy. Well, God responds to all three of these objections exactly how you might expect him to if you read chapter 3. God simply just reveals more of who he is. In response to Moses' concern about Israel not believing, God says, all right, well, if they don't believe your words, they'll believe your miracles. Uh, God says, I will lend you some of my sovereign authority over nature itself. You're going to be able to take your staff and throw it down. It's going to become a snake and you'll pick it back up and it'll become a, a staff again. I'm going to let you turn your hand leprous and then I'm going to let you heal it immediately. I'm going to let you take, take water, pour it out on the ground and it'll change and become blood before everybody's eyes. Then they'll believe you because no one else in the universe has that kind of sovereign authority. No one else in the universe can bend the laws of nature at will. But God, I'm not that good at talking. That's that's Moses' response in verse 10. Here's some miracles. God, I'm, I'm not that good with my speech. Look at God's response to him in verse 11. Then Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses says, I'm slow of speech. My mouth isn't good with words. And God says, Moses, I made your mouth. Uh, Moses, I made every mouth in this universe. I made every tongue. Uh, I'm in control of whether or not you can speak. I'm in control of whether or not you can see. I'm in control of whether or not you can hear because I am in control of everything. I'm sovereign over every aspect of who you are and I'm sovereign over every aspect of every human being ever. I know your exact limitations because I made you, Moses. And then in 13, Moses just says, send someone else. I've got nothing else to say, just not me. And only now, in our text, does it say that God becomes angry. This is truly a a humbling display of, of patience. But God becomes angry and tells Moses, in essence, what aren't you getting? If I wanted to send someone else, I could have. I know every soul on this planet. I made every soul on this planet. I know your brother Aaron. I know that he's good with his mouth. I know that he's good with his words because I made his mouth too. I could have chosen him, but I chose you, Moses. I'm not limited like you are. Stop, Stop thinking of me like a man. I am the sovereign God of the universe. I am not like you. I am who I am. And it's at this point that that the question might come up, why is God going through all this trouble? Right? If God was really sovereign, why doesn't he just liberate the people at the snap of a finger? In other words, what's the point of all this? What's the point of this story? Why appear in a bush to a shepherd who's just going to ask questions and make excuses Why would God spend all this time when he could have just done it himself? Why is this story in our Bibles? Well, so far we've learned that God is dangerous, God is relational, and God is sovereign. Do you see a common thread in those three things? What unifies those three things? It's God. God is the point of this story. We had three points in this sermon, but they all answer one question. Who is God? You see, God chooses to work in the ways that he does so that he can reveal more of who he is. God chooses to work through a man full of of limitations to show that he is not limited. Uh, One of my friends texted me just today. Uh, and, and he texted me, uh, when we were in college, I once thought about playing basketball against you with just my elbows. I was like, what? That's so mean. But, but the, the point he was trying to say was, I could have still beaten you at the greatest disadvantage. He's right, but it's still mean. But that's the point, right? I could have done it at the greatest disadvantage. That's why God does things the way he, he does in this, in this story. God's using of, of sinful, limited people puts him at a disadvantage. And so it's that much more impressive when he still comes out on top. Other reasons. God doesn't just save Israel from Egypt, but he spends verse after verse after verse communicating that he has heard their cry, that he knows their sufferings, that he has seen their affliction. God could have just saved, but God wants us to know how intimately he cares about them. God saves in the ways that he does to show what kind of God he is. Let's zoom out even more. Turn to the book of Ephesians with me. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is a text you probably know really well. Uh, But let's just read verses 6 and 7 together. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. Paul writes, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. The reason God saves Israel in the way that he does in the Old Testament is the same reason that he saves us the way he does in the New Testament to show who he is, that he might show the riches of his grace. Listen again to another example, Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel certainly saves, and we benefit for eternity because of it, but that is not the point. The point is to put God on display. To show that God is a a loving and immeasurably gracious Savior. Does someone argue that the point of the Bible is salvation? And while I think that's a a top contender, I don't think that's quite right. Uh, The point of the Bible is to show who God is. And, And doesn't it say something that page after page after page in our Bible talks about God saving unworthy sinners? It's part of who he is. And our text in Exodus is no different. If I could add a fourth point, it would be that God is a savior, because that's what the burning bush leads up to. This first meeting with God is really what sets the tone for the Exodus. Uh, This this miraculous escape from Egypt, even when an ocean stood in their way. It's going to go on to be God's greatest work of salvation until jesus christ and the point of the exodus is the same as the point of the burning bush a point is not liberation from captivity it's not freedom from oppressors the point is that god is a savior in context you could say that the burning bush shows that god is a dangerous savior God is a relational Savior, and God is a sovereign Savior. Now, let me show you what I mean. Turn back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14, this is just after the Red Sea closes up and, and swallows the Egyptian army. Exodus 14, 31, read that with me. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses, chapter 15. Then Moses said. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider have been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. You see, the result is not just Israel's salvation. The result is that Israel knew exactly where their salvation came from. The result is that they knew their God to be a Savior. A dangerous, relational, and sovereign Savior. And there's just one last thing that I'd like to close with and you'll have to flip a few more pages to see it and go to Exodus 20 with me. Just one last thing, look at Exodus chapter 20. It's, it's another famous chapter of scripture because it's the Ten Commandments. God has just saved Israel and made a, them a nation of their own and then God gives them a law that will govern this nation. That's verses 3 through 17. But before all that, God reminds them of his first impression on them. Look at verse 2, Exodus 22. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What I want you to see is that before God gave them their law, God saved them. You see, he made his first impression as a savior. And then gave them their marching orders. No amount of of laws or good works can save you. God made that clear by saving them first. And we don't obey in order to be saved either. God saves and as a result of that, then we obey. That's how it was for Israel. That's how it is for us. Father, it's a humbling thing to be in your presence. It's a humbling, humbling thing to take in more of who you are. Uh, For us to realize that if we weren't clothed in the righteousness of Christ, then our presence in your holiness would mean sure death. God, that's why we're so, so thankful that we can